Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Ed Harold here with you. Welcome to another Life with Breath Expert Series. Today I have the amazing Greg Mack with us. I met Greg uh, a few years ago, uh, pre-COVID, at a MedFit convention down in Southern California. And I've only I only met the man for a few minutes, but just his presence. And he's a heart-based fella. Like he really, like when you're around him, there's this stoic energy. And you know he knows what he's talking about. And when you're around people like that, you want to learn more. And as I dove deeper into discovering who Greg Mack is, there's a heck of a story here in regard to how he can help us today as a sports medicine expert. So welcome, Greg. Thanks, Ed. Uh, it was great meeting you out there, and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to be face-to-face again soon. Um, and I'm super excited about joining the podcast and uh, having a little chat about some of this stuff, so it'll be fun. Well, I see some of the uh, the information that you put out uh, on the social media channels, mm-hmm. and I, I notice that I never see anybody else do that. Where did you learn some of the cutting edge skills that you use to help folks reclaim their life? Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a long story, I guess. I, I, I guess, you know, a lot of it just comes from um, life experiences. Uh, you know, I've, I've been an active person my whole life, you know, recreational sports and swimming and diving and I'm always trying to exercise and kind of take care of myself the best I can. And um, you know, decided to go into uh, engineering. I, I uh, graduated from the Navy's nuclear um, engineering program, the Naval, the Naval uh, Engineering School, Power School, Nuclear Power School, and and so you know, engineering mindset, uh, obviously, uh, engineering training. Um, engineers like to solve problems, and so I really learned there um, highly technical information uh, as well as you know, how to think, how to process information, how to collect information and, um, and make decisions, uh, Mm -hmm. information that you have, how to, how to work under pressure. Um, so that's kind of, I guess would, would be the seminal area that kind of kicked me off, um, as a Navy diver as well. And, and so that was a very intensive training, very physically oriented and mentally Mm -hmm. challenging. Um, and so learned about, uh, a lot about physiology, actually, learning to be a Navy diver. You got to know physiology, uh, especially cardiopulmonary and cardiorespiratory physiology. And so, uh, so yeah, so that, that was kind of the basis. And and then I decided to kind of switch careers and, and get into the exercise field. Um, this is back in, boy, 1986, 87, around in there. Yes. Uh, a long time ago. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah completed my tour with the Navy and, and decided to figure out how to, you know, get into this field. So, um, got a job at a Nautilus center, actually Nautilus mm-hmm. franchise center. Um, I, I think second generation Nautilus equipment all over the place and, uh, and started learning about that and then heard about the ACE personal trainer certification and mm-hmm. said, all right, you know, let me go see what that's all about and went to the second annual, personal training summit in DC, um, mm-hmm. see what was going on there. I, I think idea, idea and ACE were originally connected and, and then Peter and Kathy uh, Davis who, who owned idea and ACE, they split it off 
and ACE became its own nonprofit and uh, generated, you know, uh, its own continuing ed. So attended some, some continuing ed lectures there that really helped kind of form in my mind the direction I wanted to take my career in. So uh, that's kind of where it started. And, and then I just started reading, learning, attending workshops, going to courses, um, absorb as much as I, as I could uh, to uh, figure out how to be good at using exercise truly and literally as a medicinal um, uh, intervention. Yeah, I'd look at you as a master mechanic of human physiology. And obviously, when we improve our physiology, there is an improvement in our psychology. Where, where do you see the crossing point between the medical care, the physicians, and what you're bringing to the table as far as therapeutic exercise, if that's the right label? Yeah, um, I guess uh, exercise is uh, is therapeutic, uh, you know. So yes. it's, and it's used by lots of different titles of exercise professionals, whether you're OT or PT or chiropractic. A lot of people use exercise, uh, and I'll use air quotes <clears throat> as a very general term. Um, uh, although I've got a specific definition that my colleagues and I kind of came up with, but um, you know that was the original idea. My my, my original business plan was called physician's fitness. I still operate that practice uh, mm-hmm. now where I, you know, I could see that, you know, the medical and the, and the exercise and fitness world needed to communicate. And in fact, some of the key workshops I went to at that early idea event, one of the presenters there was Dr. Bensky, a, you know, PhD mm-hmm. psychologist, um, statistician, demographer. And he was presenting some research on the emerging baby boomers and what they wanted. And what they wanted was, coordinated care between medical and and Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, of course that makes sense. And I'm not a medical provider, but I'm dealing with human health. And so I would need to pull alongside those docs and and other medical providers and and coordinate and cooperate with them. So that was the idea. And that's what I've been trying to do for 30 years. And it's unfortunately very, very difficult. Um, There's just a, a lot of, a lot of barriers language wise, um, uh, scope of practice wise, uh, ego wise, um, turf protectionism, uh, the insurance and reimbursement idea and concept associated with medicine um, versus a private pay association with mm-hmm. exercise and fitness is, you know, one of those things where they just didn't, each side, I think, gave each other a lot of lip service, but they didn't really match up really good. And so um, my whole idea was, well, I'll just bring exercise and fitness into the medical, into the medical uh, delivery um, arena. So I, I, you know, I contracted with chiropractic clinics. I worked in outpatient PT clinics, um, hospital settings, uh, had my own private studios um, alongside chiropractors. I worked in large franchise gyms as well. And so, you know, I was constantly seeking um, relationships with uh, the medical and allied medical community uh, whenever possible to try to deliver uh, exercise to the consumer uh, there. So the idea being that if they're in a medical situation, then clearly their health now is top of mind, right? Mm-hmm. Up to the point before disease or symptoms or whatever happened for them to think I need to seek medical care. Now they're motivated. So like when you look at the stages of change model, right? And mm-hmm. 
and and when when people move from pre-contemplation to contemplation, um, clearly when they're in the medical setting, they're contemplating their health. And so mm -hmm. I thought, okay, this might be a great place cognitive behaviorally to try to capture that that momentum and and move them uh, into a lifelong exercise process. So. Uh, that's what I tried to do in, in the chiropractic and the hospital settings and with the pain docs and with the physical therapists. Um, still tough. It still was not an easy thing to actually, you know, be in their settings, talking to their patients while they're in therapy or in medical care, getting referrals. You know, um, it still was a challenge. But, um, you know, we were reasonably successful. I mean, I've been doing it for 30 plus years now. Yeah, my, my thoughts are it shouldn't be as hard. Right. to blend together systematic programs where everyone is basically using this number one the same language yes that's I mean, everybody uses different languaging and that's got to be super confusing to a patient who's already stressed yes you know they, they want to be communicated clearly in the same fashion as they move through the various practitioners who they're going to see. There's a major problem with languaging as we cross uh, into different platforms. Yeah, That's the, been my experience. Yeah, the disease, the language of disease and dysfunction versus the language of exercise and health and wellness um, is there's definitely some problems there. And and the thing with the medical side of the language is they use a lot of fancy Latin language. <laughs> you know, a name, they like to name things, right? You have a spondylolisthesis, uh, you have osteoarthritis, you have, right? And so you, they get all these crazy names and, and tag the, the individual with, with disease states. And so now you have this consumer walking around thinking, well, I have this thing called spondylolisthesis, or I have this thing called osteoarthritis. Can you do anything about that? Um, mm -hmm. Once they get tagged with these names of diseases, um, you know, the person's carrying that around with them um, and, and thinking that's what they got and there's no way they can resolve it or they're asking someone to fix that for them and, and you know, exercise can't fix those things. Um, and so that part of the language is, uh, I think, more problematic than, than, than anything else, um, l let, alone, let alone what we're trying to say on the exercise fitness side about health and wellness and and musculoskeletal fitness and cardiopulmonary health versus again, the disease management side of it, which is very focused on, I have to give this a name, give it a number. And, and, and everything we do now is just based on fixing that and dealing with that and giving it a shot, giving you a drug for it. Right. And so the, the way, the way that world is constructed um, over time is very different than the way, the exercise industry is constructed. 100%. 100%. You know, the body itself is a self-healing mechanism. I mean, all its life, it's, it's fighting for us. It's fighting for our life. It's trying to preserve itself. And then every once in a while, we'll, we'll have an impact injury. You know, we'll fall off our bike or a car accident. Or over time, we have what might be called degenerative disease or wear and tear issues that take place. Is there a certain theme that you see when folks come to you when they're looking for help? Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, I generally group them as uh, under this category I call sensations people don't like. 
<laughs> right? I love it. And so, and so they'll have lots of, again, words they'll use like tightness, soreness, stiffness, pain, right? And pain is simply a word, an English word used to elevate the status of the sensation they don't like, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it'd be like, this is a big problem, pain. Eh, discomfort, not that big of a problem. Tightness, I don't like it, but I can live with it. Pain, this has got to stop, right? Um, and so people are coming to me with sensations they don't like. And they want those sensations removed, you know, and, and that's really, you know, the, the primary driver. Um, uh, often uh, I can improve their sensations that they don't like and, and get them to sensationlessness, if you will, because I, you know, I ask people often, you know, how do you feel? And they say, I feel good. And I say, why? Mm -hmm. They look at me kind of perplexed, like, what do you mean? Why do I feel good? I'm like, yeah, well, what does it what does it mean to feel good? And right. when I press them, it really is about, I, I don't have any sensations I don't like. <laughs> mm -hmm. not, right? And when I want to move my body and, and do the things I want, I can with general ease. And so the subjectiveness and qualitativeness of their existence, you know, somatically um, is, is really what defines whether they think they're well or not. Yeah. I mean, one thing I've noticed as, as a species, we seem to be hardwired to constantly search for pleasure. And, and while the initial thought of that and how we activate that could come from our heart, you know, I see a lot of people searching for pleasure in ways that are they're destroying their health because they want more and more and more of that drug or whatever that is in exercise, uh, overdoing things, thinking more is always better. I think that's a great way to start with folks. Why? You know, what is going on here inside you and the absence of pain? You know, one of the ways we can really harness happiness and pleasure is to have a relationship with pain, <laughs> a healthy relationship with it. Well, yeah, I mean, pain is, um, you know, ultimately the conclusion uh, of the system and you decide to use the word to pain to describe it, um, you know, without that ability to discern uh, something wrong inside you, you know, and there's a particular diagnosis for that, um, you probably die early because you, you can't know when there's a problem. Um, and so pain is not just a problem, but it's an opportunity. And, and people don't always want to hear that, you know, like, oh, this pain that you're having or that you're describing is an opportunity um, for us to, you know, go on some exploration here and figure out you know, possibly how to how to change that and why that might be the case. And sometimes it's very clear why, you know, someone has a pain or a sensation, but often it's not clear why. Um, and this is very confusing um, and it's really impacting the medical side in a significant way because now, you know, now they're seeing, you know, these research studies coming out that are saying, look, uh, you know, we did this randomized selection and sampling of a bunch of people and and MRI their lumbar spine, and there was a whole lot of people with diagnosable organic disease there that had no symptoms. And then mm -hmm. we have a whole bunch of people that we can't see any organic structural disease, and they have symptoms they don't like. How are we going to explain this? Right, right. So we're talking about pain. We're talking about diagnosis. <clears throat> we can't move forward in a skillful way without a detailed diagnosis 
to the best of our ability of our level of professional awareness of what's going on inside the patient. Is there, is there some go-to things that, that you really feel comfortable with that give patients some stability? Because the diagnosis, like, we don't want to have to double back, okay? We want this journey to be as smooth as possible, and we know it's going to be probably a little bumpy ride. It's not a Recovery is not a straight line. Is there some go-to things that you really feel comfortable with that you've cultivated over your 30-plus year career? Yeah, well, one, uh, you know, I, I – my certification has allowed me to officially diagnose anything. And so I've been fortunate over the years of seeking medical relationships that I've developed several very good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have physicians that know what I do. Um, I go with my clients to the visit with the doctor and I refer them and say, you know, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what's happening. Let's you know figure out what's going on. And, and can you diagnose something here? Um, and so I'm collaborating with, you know, medical providers so they can render and, and, create a name for the disease. Um, and then we can start talking about, um, okay, what can we do now about this? And what role can I play on the exercise side? And, and do we need to do something else um, entirely? You know, talk to a surgeon or whatever. So uh, th- that's primarily what I do there. Um, as far as me prognostically trying to get a sense of, of where someone's at, um, we have a very sophisticated system of sampling um, the motor output, motor control, and the interviewing that we do to find out, you know, where there could be problematic areas, where they're having trouble controlling their body and generating, you know, muscle torque and, and moving uh, as well as they, they structurally can, uh, because, you know, we're real, real strong believers that, you know, when you do move better, when you can control yourself better under a variety of conditions, um, you are more robust uh, your central nervous system doesn't have to push the panic button and uh, mm-hmm. and elevate the status of sensory signals so that there's alarms going off and and people just feel better when they mm-hmm. learn how to move and control themselves better. So we're constantly searching for, you know, where have you kind of lost your edge in being able to, to generate, you know, movement and control and position control um, and teach them how to get that back. Um through as many systems as we can. I mean, you know, we're accessing the eye motor system, uh, mm-hmm. the auditory motor system, the laryngeal system, pelvic floor, cardiorespiratory, um, and connecting that to the rest of their rest of their uh, abilities and and understanding how their physical history, injuries, surgeries, diseases, could be impinging on on that. So it's very much a systems and thinking approach um, to. Um, figuring out where they are now, where they having trouble moving, where are their sensations they don't like, um, mm-hmm. and trying to get that back to them. Because that's one thing I really, uh, I really had a, a tough time for a while coming from an environment like a, you know, a nuclear submarine primary propulsion plant system where we quantified everything. I mean, right. we didn't have a number in units. So, you know, we didn't know what to do for the most part. I mean, we relied on our sense of smell, of course, and hearing things, but um, it was about numbers. And here I am looking at a human being, and we've got all kinds of numbers we can produce. Um, but what I realized was, again, those are irrelevant to the to the human if they still have sensations they don't like. They, they, they don't care right. that I can improve their, 
their trunk flexion from 50 pounds of torque to 100 if their back still hurts. They don't care. What, what they want to know is, how can I move without discomfort, tightness, soreness, pain? And then I realized, wait a minute. They're the epistemic authority of their sensations. Their ability to be introspective and to report to me what they're experiencing in their body, with their body, becomes tantamount for, for me to understand so that I could try to interpret that and then construct exercises and stimulations to see if we can start to, to change or move that. And so I've really spent a lot of time learning how to live in qualitative land and right. um, increasing my understanding of their subjectiveness. That's beautiful. And that's why you're, you're a pro. Uh, nobody's a number. Everybody's a human being. Right. You know, when you think about folks, when they come and see you, it's probably quite obvious that they're not fully functionally breathing. They're dysfunctionally breathing. They're in a sympathetic action. They're stressed. The sky is falling. I'm in pain. And we make that real. That becomes that becomes our reality. Yeah, about 10 years ago, we began to see folks talking about how we're breathing would play a role in therapeutic orthopedic recovery, get them into that parasympathetic response, get a little bit more range of motion in the body, a little more circulation, break up maybe a, some scar tissue or inflammation in a more efficient manner. How do you guys uh, feel about the diaphragmatic breathing and things like that that we know are so important to homeostasis in the body? It's huge. I mean, you know, we're, we're looking at that. I mean, we're looking at the physical history you know, is there anything in the physical history that may have be have impinged mm -hmm. on their ability to you know to respirate? Um, mm -hmm. that is a mechanical process um, that involves the you know the diaphragm and intercostal muscles and a lot of trunk muscles. There's a reflexive associations with the pelvic floor and the laryngeal muscles. I mean, so the the, the respiratory system is um, very influential. Um, mm -hmm. You know, especially to the uh, axial skeleton function, let alone the appendicular, where mm -hmm. you know, how well the axial skeleton is at controlling itself and, and maintaining mm -hmm. it, it affects appendicular control. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we look at that, we take you know upper and lower thoracic excursion measurements during respiration to see mm -hmm. any big differences. Um, we do a, a tactile assessment to, to see how um, the, the, the thorax is moving. Um, as they as they breathe, you know, we do a quiescent breathing uh, observation with them to see if they're, you know, diaphragmatically breathing or, you know, upper thoracically breathing. Um, uh, because, yeah, if there are problems there, you know, we tend to elevate those in our prescriptive process to say, look, you've got to get a grip on this breathing thing. Right. Before before we start trying to pile on a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah, it's funny because when folks, it's not funny, but when folks are in pain, they stop breathing. Yeah. Because they don't want to feel that intrusion, that pain any longer. When we breathe shallow, we can kind of bypass where that contusion or scar tissue or whatever the particular orthopedic issue might be. Yep, there's no no question. Uh, they're in a <clears throat> fight-flight response. Um, they're in a highly protective state. And, you know, your diaphragm's attached to your spine, your spinal column. Again, affects your pelvic floor, affects the way your neck works. I, you know, I mean, it's a profoundly influential 
part of the body. So, you know, it's really that bridge between the voluntary and involuntary motor system. Could you speak a little bit about the connection of the thoracic diaphragm, not from a breathing standpoint, but from a pattern of movement standpoint? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, simply speaking, when you inhale, that tends to promote spinal extension. Mm -hmm. You exhale, that tends to promote spinal flexion. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. th those are two very simple mechanical um, coupled processes that you can um, work with and lean on uh, and observe to see if that's actually happening. If someone's breathing in and, and flexing, that, that is a, a not a normative or natural necessarily way to to uh, to respirate, right? Because when we breathe in, what are we trying to do? We're trying to get the, the lungs to expand and fill up. And so the diaphragm's got to drop, the organs have to, you know, move out of the way, the thorax, the rib cage has to, you know, upper has to open up and the lower two have to swing door, right? The swing door <clears> thing. <throat> um, and so to, to get all that going, extension helps promote that. Um, and then, you know, exhalation, the opposite direction. So um, for sure. So how the, how the ribs themselves are moving when you turn, uh, when you side bend and they open and close mechanically. And, and so we assess respiration uh, multiple different ways, uh, what we call configurations, um, to see how well uh, they, can, they can control their breathing while they're rotated, while they're side bent, while they're standing, while they're lying down, right? So very important. Yes. Any type of movement can really impair the the movement of the diaphragm as it's vertically trying to press down and provide support in you know lumbar four five, and it's just amazing as I took a look and into a deeper dive into what's happening with the thoracic diaphragm. It almost has the same responsibilities as an organ. Mm -hmm. There's so many different things that it's responsible for backstage, sort of speak, that we're not really fully conscious of, but a pro like yourself knows exactly what's going on there, and it's powerful. Yeah, I mean, think about a hiatal hernia. Mm -hmm. What do you think's going on there, right? Mm -hmm. that, transition, yeah. that transition, you know, it's got to go through the diaphragm. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, that's a complicated um, set of mechanical tissue relationships there, and if that gets disrupted... Well, you got you got a potential problem there. So that's the thing about systems thinking and what a system is by definition is an interdependent, interconnected, interacting um, process. So by that definition, we have to understand or accept that any part any part of the body can negatively affect or positively affect another part, even remotely away from it. Um, now, whether it does or not, that's a different matter. But it can. And so the question is, do you have processes, samples, uh, ways for you to set up observations so that you can start to get an idea of whether or not one part of the body is influencing another in a way that's um, uh, contributing to the sensation the person doesn't like or the movement or position they can't control or hold? Let's dive in a little bit about these ribs. <clears throat> Folks that have rib injuries fall off a mountain bike or you know whatever it may be chest tube yeah I mean, <laughs> these guys are like paralyzed i mean the ribs just do not like any unauthorized contact <laughs> and, we, and when you think about it 
how we can move the floating ribs downward and upward, expand them with the diaphragm. You know, the diaphragm is kind of different. It's a huge muscle, but it only has one motor nerve. So it takes a, some practice to amplify that frantic nerve so that we can increase the strength and range of motion of, of that muscle and get these ribs expanding and contracting again without uh, sensations people don't like. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they have, and those are, those are reflexively wired up. It's a central pattern generator in the nervous system, right? So um, there's a lot of cross wiring and circuitry in the, in the spinal cord. And that's even, you know, below the brain level that drives some of these processes. And so um, if there's a disruption in there for any reason, um, it's going to create some, some havoc, um, not just locally, but regionally. And, and the ribs, the ribs are supposed to be somewhat flexible, but, you know, so they have that viscoelastic component mm -hmm. to them, but they, they're supposed to be relatively rigid too, for a reason, right? Uh, right. So this is an interesting game to play with the rib cage. And the axes, the mechanical axes of the of the ribs are kind of complicated, actually. I mean, on the front end, they're attached to that chondral cartilage, so there's not a big, you know, degree of freedom there. It's all in the back. So even the way the rib actually moves uh, is very dynamic and strange. Um, uh, and all the all the muscles that attach to those to those things, um, it's incredible how many muscles attach to. Uh, the thorax, the, the rib cage to act on them. Um, and so the ribs are um, influencing and being influenced by the shoulders, by the pelvis, by the femurs. It's incredible. Uh, and so you can see why someone um, would have respiratory uh, dysfunction, even given extremity injuries. Uh, and right. we see that, you know, we see that often. I mean, someone has a serious shoulder injury and, and how many muscles attached you know, the shoulder to the rib cage, you know, the serratus anterior, huge muscle attaches mm -hmm. to eight, eight of the ribs. You've got, you've got um, the serratus posterior, you know, so there's just a bunch of, a bunch of muscles that influence that, that rib cage. And, and so understanding the basic mechanics of that become very important. And, and it's interesting because, you know, sometimes uh, we're working with someone and we'll just say, Hey, look, we just want you to, you know, start fully inhaling and exhaling. They haven't mm -hmm. really ever gone through that simple excursion of exhaling. Mm -hmm. And then when you tell someone, exhale more, and they're like, what do you mean? There's more exhale. You got more in you. Push that right. air out. And they start coughing, right? The, the diaphragm right. spasms because it's not used to contracting like that. Um, and so people are often surprised by that. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up. I've been speaking about this recently about how weak we've allowed our exhale muscles to become and our stress levels on all levels, physically, mentally, emotionally are sky high. So it, there's a, definitely a correlation between our overall sense of self and our ability to expel waste. Yeah. I mean, you need carbon dioxide out. <clears throat> you need that stuff out. And if you're not fully exhaling periodically, um, you've probably got some some CO2 levels hanging around in your, in your lobes of your lungs that you don't really need there. You know, when you think about exhale, and I'm going to just reach here. You can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, we need the body and the mind to relax for maximum absorption of the techniques that you're teaching. We know that exhaling longer than the inhale has a tendency to trigger the vagus nerve. <laughs> How does the vagus nerve play a role 
in sports medicine? Well, you know, it's part of the, the flow, right? It's part of generating that, uh, that relaxed state of, of control and power, right? And so that, that vagus nerve, because I, I have a vagal vagus response, right? I mean, I, can, I used to have a common faint um, and, and failed at, you know, the tilt table test, right? Got nauseous and everything. Uh, and so I, I have used, I've used the breathing exercises. I haven't had that occur in a long time, you know, now. Um, mm. But yes, uh, you know, that now you're talking about the neuroendocrine access, right? Uh, access, mm -hmm. are talking about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And when you start doing that, now you're dealing with cortisol levels, ep uh, epinephrine levels, right? Um, and so, wow, th that's the thing you really want to learn how to control because now you're talking about brain state. Now you're talking mm -hmm. about, now you're talking about the frequencies that the brain is actually, you know, functioning under alpha frequencies, right? Beta frequency. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is what, you know, respirating um, can help you access and generates amazing. Mm -hmm. I, I look at this as uh, I'm, I'm probably just on the surface of this, but there's kind of four ways we take care of ourselves. And there, there's cardiovascular exercise, there's strength training, there's flexibility training and, and there's there's mindfulness training, kind of like the four basic 101 levels of what you know a body requires to repair itself or not require repair. How does what you do interact with those four pillars? Yeah, so I would tell you directly um, in, in some senses, right? So <clears throat> the, the idea of flexibility first um, really for for me is built around the idea of muscle contractile capabilities because skeletal mm -hmm. muscle um, really, um, in addition, obviously, to smooth muscle is some of the only tissue in the body that can radically alter its own length. Um, Interesting. And so, uh, and it seems to be built to do that, right, with the sarcomere and the overlap theory and, and, and how that mechanically works. And so uh, I look at flexibility as more a function of how far and how much muscle tension, both on the shortening, how much you can shorten, as, mm -hmm. as well as how much you can lengthen actively um, within the structural limits of your joints. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when, when, we, when we talk to people about flexibility, we don't really talk to them about passive um, strategies thinking that the body is made out of silly putty or play-doh or something like that um trying to rub it or stretch it or change its length that way you really can't quite frankly um and so what we find is that when someone gains more and more control over how much shortening muscle tension and lengthening muscle tension they have their range of motion if we want to talk about flexibility from that perspective uh increases dramatically without really yeah, without having to uh, passively rub or or think you're stretching a tendon or connective tissue or something, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it really it really doesn't happen. So yeah, this is why we focus so much on voluntary muscle control um, for sure. So uh, that's the flexibility side of it. So is there another pillar that you wanna want me to? Yeah, well, I think about strength training or just putting a load on, on a muscle. And 
my my take is we don't have to put a big load on a muscle to promote change. No, uh, definitely not. The research there is is very good. I mean, you know, you can get very good results um, with you know less torque and higher mm -hmm. repetitions and, and manipulate rest intervals. Um, but again, clearly there's some demarcation there. I mean, you're not you're you don't see 400 pound powerlifters running marathons. They don't do right. it. Right. So there's clearly a tipping point where if this is really what you want to change and the direction you want to change, then you're going to have to de develop a lot of torque and lift very heavy things. Right. Um, to get the kind of change you want. But for just general health and wellness, no, you don't you don't need to take the risks associated with high torque activities like Olympic lifting or power lifting and things. Right. Like that. Um, you, you can definitely get some great benefits from higher repetitions. Uh, and lower lower torque per profiles, um, and and build endurance and strength that way. And again, th these words strength and weakness and endurance, you know, they're very relativistic, right? Like, you know, endurance is a different thing for a marathon runner, you know, mm -hmm. um, than somebody who's you know trying to walk through the airport, um, right? Without right. Eat, right. So carrying their bag. So, but um, generally speaking, uh, you know, if you want if, if you want to have, uh, you know, a system that's pretty well-rounded, um, you want a little bit of all of that stuff, but I would bias it towards, you know, mm -hmm. strength. I mean, the more, the more muscle cross-section you have as you age, the, the kind of the, the more you, the more margin you have as well, because sarcopenia is such a, such a problem for you. And skeletal muscle is an endocrine organ. The skeletal muscles produce myokines. They, they produce um, powerful, uh, chemicals that influence a variety of organs, um, let alone your, you know, your neuroimmune system. So um, it's fairly important to, to contract your muscles regularly. I'm so glad you brought that up about skeletal muscles, because I noticed myself in my exercise routine, when I focus not on the muscles that I see in the mirror, but when I focus on the muscles that are on my bones, I seem to be in a, a deeper mental concentration state. I seem to have more control of my body. My heart rate seems to be lower, and I seem to be more in control of whatever I'm trying to do. What What is the genius of these skeletal muscles that we're never going to see in the mirror but play such a huge role in overall health and performance? Yeah, this is a real driver, again, kind of axiomatically um, that drives our philosophy, and again, why we focus so much of our practice now on improving muscle skeletal health and muscle skeletal care and, and, and educating the consumer that, you know, their muscle skeletal system is, is an organ like their brain and like their lung and like their heart. These things, it needs to be taken care of just the same. Um, and, and if you really think about, you know, the most fundamental aspect of being a living human um, and survival being the kind of the lowest level of function. And if you're not surviving, well, then what nothing matters. And if you're going to survive in an environment, uh, you have to be able to move. If you can't move in an environment to find water, to find food, right, to find shelter, to run away from, you know, noxious things, uh, you'll die. And so, you know, fundamentally, uh, everything about us, our brain, our central nervous system, our heart, our lungs are there to serve who? Skeletal muscle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we can't contract our muscles, we're done. It's over. We we would have to totally rely on someone else who could to bring us food, to bring us water, right? And so I think that's 
that's the uh, overlooked um, power mm-hmm. uh, of skeletal muscle. And so the health of your skeletal muscle system is, is um, critically important for your ability to not just survive, but to, to thrive. And again, I'm not saying the heart isn't important. Obviously, you can't live without a heart. Um, you can't live without a brain. I, I get all that. But these things are all connected. But if, if, if you can't move, you're in big, big trouble. Yeah, and it takes energy to move or, you know, the capacity to do stuff, just in a simple term of energy. And what is the quality of our energy? You know, where do we find that quality energy? The skeletal muscles is super efficient in regard to patterns of movement, you know, relaying information to the brain that's dependable. It's not ego. It's like, this is what's happening. You know, and I really, I trust that so much more than sometimes what is superficial really important right and so we get back to that introspective idea and that the, the subjectiveness of that um and and turning your attention and the motor the motor control stuff shows that attentionality alters motor output what you're thinking about changes mm-hmm. the way your nervous system works <laughs> to control these muscles um and and you know i mean you know, we've seen those remarkable videos of the um, uh, the monks, right, who, you know, can be out in 20 degree, minus 20 degree weather or some crazy cold weather, or, or they put these cold blankets on them and, and they can mm-hmm. actually control their internal system in such a way to uh, to warm their own bodies and change their blood pressure. And uh, it's, it's really re- remarkable. Uh, and I can't remember the guy off the top of my head. Um, ran all the marathons in the ice and uh, mm-hmm. snow mm-hmm. Um, and he uses breathing to change his pH levels. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so this idea of focusing um, your attention uh, on your own internal somatic and sensory right. abilities um, is a quite a powerful, powerful idea. Yeah. They say when you focus on your breath, that the higher learning centers of the hippocampus immediately light up in regard to what is going on and is there anything here new to learn? Yep, and, that. and that's amazing that that's hardwired into us by just concentrating on an in or out breath. Instantaneously, you're present. It's incredible stuff, right? And it kind of it kind of discourages that when I go to the gym and walk and, and watch people work out. <clears throat> they're wearing what? What are they wearing? You know, they're they're wearing don't, their, their iPod. Don't go there. Yeah, you know, and they're kind of they're kind of tuning their body out. They're they're tuning themselves out of their body, um, right? And, and and I'm like, man, that's too bad. You're really missing out on some powerful things here, where you can really focus on um, your body and what you're feeling and what you want to feel and 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 your internal experience um, while you're exercising versus trying to tune that out so that you don't experience that. I think I think it's a real problem. Um, uh, for for someone long term, really trying to obtain, you know, higher levels of control and health. Yeah, I, I I'm totally against distraction and stimulation, other than the therapeutic exercise or training experience. Like you must listen to your story, yeah. and what's unfolding in your exercise routine is a processing of recent emotional activity that might not be fully integrated into self-confidence, self-esteem, feeling pretty good about ourselves. So we put these things in our head so we can separate the head from the body. And then we move the body, we raise our heart rate, we break a sweat. And then we wonder why we don't see the same gains 
that we used to see when there wasn't as much distraction in the gym. Yeah, absolutely. So being present, right? Very important. Yeah. It's like folks can't be alone. It's like, there's no better alone than the voice in your head. You're going to carry it your whole life. You better make friends with that roommate because yeah. it can become a rowdy roommate or it can become your best friend. And, you know, I used to always, well, I still do this. When I exercise, it's always about tuning into what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Like right now. And how do I correct that, amplify that or discard that subconsciously out of my spirit? Like the story is here. And the body's always, God, it's the body is such a great storyteller. Like, why wouldn't we want to hear our story? Yeah. You got to check in. I, that's what we try to educate our consumers to do, right? Our clients to do is you got to check in. What's how things feeling? What's your elbow like today? What's your shoulders feel like today? How's your neck working today? Right. <laughs> your eyeball muscles working okay. Right. I mean, you got to check in with these things. And when then, and that's how you're going to discover, you know, potential issues that are maybe sleepers there um, that might be problematic later is, you know, you're like, wait a minute, I just tried to move my hip this way and I felt something I didn't like in there. Right. All right. right. We better get on that thing. Right. How do you, well, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about was, I mean, obviously you've had a rich career and it's not over yet and your best days are in front of you. And and we've seen sports medicine evolve or that's the right label for what you're doing so far from the 80s and 90s. But not becoming negative, there, there, there is some things in your field. There is some things in my field. Like when I see it, I'm like, oh, my God, like how did that get out there? Is there some things you'd like to see different in your field that might make it more efficient for the patient? Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't know, sports medicine, maybe, you know, generally I would tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a muscle system specialist and, and I'm an exercise professional trying to use the muscle system, you know, medicinally, and right. however you want to call that. Do I work with athletes? Yes. All the time. Right. Um, do I work with athletes that have been injured? And they're kind of under that sports medicine umbrella. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah, I've been working with a, you know, a kid who just had some Tommy John surgery, potential professional pitcher. He's having a lot of trouble. Things aren't going really good, right? Post-surgical. And there's some, some issues there we're trying to figure out. And there's all kinds of system problems. Uh, and so <clears throat> speaking to that uh, and, and understanding, you know, how modern sports is organized, um, from a training perspective in speaking with professional strength conditioning coaches at both amateur and professional levels, um, you can see the trade-offs and the problems with the trade-offs. And one of the big trade-offs is they got all these athletes, very limited a period of time. And so they kind of have to develop these protocols for warming up and these protocols for training. And uh, there really is no time to spend on deep problem solving and, and, and coming up with more comprehensive assessments um, to try to find out uh, what the heck could be going on. And so that's the real thing I'd like to see change is, you know, slow some things down here. And instead of trying to find the least amount you can do, right, um, and sacrificing your ability to actually discover problems, uh, because I think a lot of athletes' careers have been cut short because of these protocols and these quick fixes and 
we can't find it in 10 minutes, well, then that's too bad. Um, I guess we're not going to find it. Um, and they have to seek, you know, care outside of the, the arena that they're in. Uh, and so, yeah, assessment, um, learning how to be a, a, a practitioner scientist, a, a good field scientist, making mm-hmm. observations, mm-hmm. writing down your observations, right? Um, asking the right questions and learning how to think through the data that you collect um, to come up with some working hypotheses and then setting up some experiments and tests and running them and, and seeing, seeing what, what works here. Right. So, um, that's the, that's the thing I think that's, that's really missing. Um, and there's a real powerful trend now again, to get back into quantification, right? We have to measure by force plates. We have to have, um, uh, you know, uh, meters, uh, that, that measure velocity, you know, we need to understand, um, uh, ground reaction forces, right? But none of it translates to the subjective experience of the athlete. You know, they're mm-hmm. still saying, okay, uh, my shoulder still hurts. Yeah, but you're right. doing so good. You can jump off the ground, you know, and both feet, you know, have symmetrical distribution of force, right? Uh, and it's like, well, how do you connect that to the problems that they're having? So <clears throat> there's a real, a real disconnect between, again, the quantified world and, the, and, and coupling that with the qualitative world. So you work with both professionals and then you work with patients. Yes. Do you notice the similarity between both of them? Uh, um, there are similarities and some key, uh, I would say, emotional and cognitive differences. Right, sure. right. Um, you know, the similarities are uh, both parties have sensations they don't like. You know, and they want to get rid of them. Uh, and the sensations, you know, tend to be, you know, pretty similarly reported tightness, soreness, pain. I can't move this properly. Right. Um, I can't do what I, I want to do uh, with with, you know, the average person who's not athletic, which is most of the, the population I work with. They're not interested in being an athlete. They don't want to be trained like an athlete. They don't need the risks that athletes take in their training. Uh, they just want to be able to do their activities of living and travel and play with their kids and grandkids, right, without any problems, right, movement-wise. That's what they want, you know. Um, but athletes, they want to and they they seek risk, right, and they want to operate at the edges of their envelope um, and, and often beyond that because that's the thing about sports is it's really not about fitness. It's about performance, and getting the most you possibly can out of the machine. And you don't even know what that is until you exceed it. And now you're broken. Right. That's what right. happens. Right? Uh, and, they're in, and their focus is get back on the field, get mm-hmm. back into competition. How quickly, how quickly can I do this? What do I have to do in the short term, you know, to, to stave off the sensation I don't like and keep my performance as high as possible. And they'll take all kinds of risks that will have, and that do have long-term negative influences on their body. Um, I was just hearing about, you know, Nadal, the tennis player, he's been struggling with a foot problem for almost since he started and they just injecting mm-hmm. his foot with stuff, right. And rubbing it. And is it better? No, it's not. They're just trying to keep them on the field. Um, athletes, you know, with joint problems, you know, inject them with xylocaine or something and try to diminish the pain and let's get them back on the, on the field. Uh, athletes not reporting that they have, you know, pain and dysfunction or they've injured themselves because 
they're afraid they'll lose their position. Um, mm -hmm. Or if there's money on the line, and we're talking about millions of dollars here, uh, they won't report it, right? Because they don't want to lose a contract or be put on injured reserve or something like that. So um, it's a really different world for, for the professional who's who's making money versus the, the, the regular average client who you know, just wants to have a higher quality of life. You know, when you speak at the average client and, you know, we're all not as young as we used to be, what are some of the the pillars that, that you'd like to give folks so that they can remain active as things start to deteriorate over a period of years? Yeah, they have to exercise. And, and, and so the question is, can I find and help them find some physical activity that, that they'll do? Uh, and I'm not, I don't really care if it's Pilates or yoga or weightlifting or running. I, it doesn't bother me really what they do. Uh, the, the question is, will they keep doing it? And are they prepared to do it without being injured? Um, and, and, and if they're a runner, then I'll say, let's round that off with some upper extremity, you know, exercises. But, you know, I have clients who they don't want to join a gym. They're not interested in a gym. You know, they just want to do some exercise at home. And so I develop a body weight based calisthenic routine for them. Maybe they get some dumbbells or something. And I say, all right, here's a simple 20 minute routine you can do three times, four times a week to kind of keep you tuned up so you can play tennis and golf and do all these things um, for you. And, and so it's really about, you know, what's the minimum dose they need so they, they can do what they want with a, the widest enough margin so they don't get to the edges and injure themselves, right? So that's right. what I'm trying to figure out with them all the time. Here's something right in your wheelhouse. The research tends to indicate that folks who do become active only stay active for six months, four to six months, and then it's back to the old subconscious lifestyle. Why do you think that occurs to folks that there's such a small percentage that always can remain active? Yeah, it's a it's a huge problem. I, I I can't even I don't know if I could tell you why I schedule my exercise like I schedule anything else. I, you know, it's just part of my lifestyle, right? And why I do that? It, it's part of my value system. Obviously, it's important to me um, th that I I'm able to use. Now, being in the industry, I have more knowledge about you know, why what I'm doing in my 50s will impact my 70s and how I want my life to be in my 70s is based right. on the decisions I made in my 40s and 50s, right? So I, can, mm -hmm. I have the, the big picture. And I think a lot of folks don't have the big picture. They're very focused on expediency and what's going on today. And if they feel okay, and why do I need to do this exercise thing, right? It's when they start to have trouble that they realize, oh, no, um, I should have been exercising my whole life. Yeah, you probably should have been. But um, I think it's uh, uh, an educational thing. You know, obviously physical education in, in our school systems is taking a nosedive. Um, it's probably uh, familially influenced, you know, as, as children observing their parents. Uh, the research does show that active parents tend to produce active children. Um, mm -hmm. the, the children see that. They just say, oh, my parents take walks and they go golfing. And they exercise on a, on this bike every day, and maybe I should do that, right? Um, so, uh, so I think that's that's part of it. But yeah, we haven't been able to really penetrate um, most of the most of the the population, you know, with this value of Hayman, 
you know, it really doesn't take as much as you might think for, for you to really extract some great benefit from regular physical activity. And, and so this is, um, this has been, you know, actually one of the, the key things that, you know, my colleagues came up with was I think some of the problem is in the very definition of exercise. And, and, you know, I talk to people all the time, you know, who say, well, I exercise. And I say, oh, great. What do you do? And they go, well, I garden. Right. Right. "Ah, I'm not sure that's really exercise. They want to conflate an activity of daily living with exercise. Right. And I'm thinking that's part of the problem is, they don't know what exercise actually is because they don't have a correct definition of it. They just think if I get up from the desk and go over to the laundry room and carry my laundry basket over to the bedroom and, and, and fold the clothes as I'm exercising. No, you're not, you're not, you're not exercising. Um, and so the real difference there, we, and we came up with a definition, but generally speaking, we wanted to demarcate an activity of daily living from an exercise. And really the demarcation is exercise is an activity that you engage in or remove in order to intentionally make a physiological change to drive an adaptation. An activity of daily living is just you doing something task-wise to to complete a, a purposeful activity. That's it. And so me walking the dog is not exercise. Unless I intentionally now that we get back right. to this idea of introspection, right? Is right. Like, I'm going to walk the dog today, but my goal is I'm going to try to walk and get my heart rate up and improve my walking endurance. Well, now you've turned walking the dog into exercise. Mm-hmm. But if you just plug yourself into your iPod and you're just kind of strolling with the dog down the sidewalk, um, that's not exercise. It's not that's awesome. walking the dog. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that that's not that's not healthy for you. I, that's not mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Uh, it might be good for you to go for a walk with the dog, but it's not exercise because right. you're not intentionally doing it to drive a change or adaptation in your body. I think there's all sorts of different ways that folks can work with you. Can could you share a couple of those so folks can get a hold of you if they have some issues? Um. Well, yeah, the best way is to go to uh, my private practice, uh, physiciansfitness.com, um, you know, fill out the, uh, hey, contact me sheet, and I'll give you a holler, and we'll we'll talk by phone and see where you're at and what you need to do. Um, now, I need to do a physical assessment. Um, I'm not a big fan of Zoom calling and over-the-phone stuff because the things I do and the way I have to assess the body, I need to be physically with you. Um, mm-hmm. So... I have people from all over the country, the world that fly in and, and I work with them and, and get them moving. Once I get a, a baseline and I'm work with you physically, then it's easier to work with you via Zoom call or something like that because I have actual physical data to work from um, and you'll understand what I'm trying to do a whole lot better. Um, and so that's the best way. Um, educationally, with exercise professional education, we do uh, online courses to teach people how to practice this way um, and uh, you know, become a practitioner scientist and think uh, about you know, what, solving problems. If you if you want to solve problems, we've got the we've got the content for you. That's great. And you're in Columbus, beautiful Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, go Bucks. I love that, man. 
Greg, man, I learned so much. You're such an American treasure. Thanks for sharing some of your knowledge with our listeners today. My pleasure, Ed. Um, and I uh, hope uh, the best for you and your family in the future. And um, I certainly appreciate you. Have a great summer and I'll see you at the next convention. All right, buddy. Appreciate you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.